We're going to go for our main Bible reading now, which is 1 Timothy chapter 4. Reading again from the ESV. Useful for you to turn to this and have this open as we look at it together this morning. 1 Timothy 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter. One Timothy four verse one. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things, let no one despise you for your use. But set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, devote yourself to them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do keep that text open. We're going to be looking at that together. And there's an outline of where we're going in the service sheet. So uh, do make use of that. It helps you to make notes, to study your thinking, or to jot down your own thinking as we go through. Is that, is that distracting to people? Just no one can hear it. Okay, fine. Huh? No, I don't mind. Feels like someone's trying to climb in, but I know they probably can't be because it's quite high up. Uh, Tom will take a look. It's just the um, the blinds rattling. Well, before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who does not change, and that you are the God who is truthful, good, and sovereign. And we pray, therefore, as your people, that we might vindicate who you are in the way we respond to your word, that we would listen, trust, and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. The story opens with the public exposure of Hester Prynne, holding an infant daughter whose father she refuses to identify. In punishment, she is ostracised by the Puritan community and forced to wear a scarlet letter A for the rest of her life. 
The father of the girl is the town minister, Arthur Dimsdale, who was too weak-willed to shoulder his share of responsibility for the sin of adultery. As the story unfolds, his secret is kept and he continues to be known as the respected minister until, well, I won't spoil it for you. That's the introduction of a book called Scarlet Letter. And it was one of the books that was first mass produced in the United States and is considered a classic work in American literature. And the book has lent its name to what is called the Scarlet Letter Syndrome. It's the dynamic of maintaining an outward show of piety whilst being inwardly corrupt. The minister, Dimsdale, does it in spades. He's outwardly pious, a respected minister, but inwardly corrupt, a secret adulterer. And it's a position that's understandably despised by those outside the faith. Now, before we have a look at we get into 1 Timothy 4, let's think for a moment how we might end up in such a dynamic. Now, what kind of path would lead to this position? Well, one such path actually begins with a concern for holiness. Sometimes termed as holiness movements, it begins with this idea of perfectionism and in its starkest form, that our life may now be sinless. And it's because holiness movements have provided strong motivation for godly living that makes them so attractive. Now, of course, one day we will be holy as God is holy. But the holiness movement brings that forward. It's to say that the benefits of the return of Christ are fully available now. Now, creating a path like this has considerable risks. If we're saying that some sort of perfection is available, then consider what it will mean if I don't show it. Either I conclude that I'm not a true believer and the fruit of repentance, or lack of, becomes the basis for assurance, or lack of. Or, what I thought was perfection was in reality more than what God wanted, and God's standards are lowered. And it's the second consequence that is particularly interesting, because invariably, the way God's standards are lowered is by maintaining an outward show of piety whilst being inwardly corrupt. It's the scarlet letter syndrome. In verses 1 to 5 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, there are actually two groups of people in view. Let's read again. Follow with me if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. 
and see if you can spot the two groups. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So the first group are the people who are falling away, verse 1. And that was coming about through the second group, the opponents, of verse 2. Now notice that the characterization of the opponents is one of insincerity. At one level, they know what they are doing and teaching is wrong. Now this is what will happen, and Paul seems to think that this is what the Spirit expressly says. But where? Where does the Spirit expressly say this? Now the idea of apostasy in the last days isn't absent in the Old Testament. You know, for example, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, or uh, in the Gospels, for example, Mark 13. But it's also tempting to go back to Paul's prophecy in Acts 20, where he told the Ephesian church these words, Acts 20, verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The point being that because the Spirit clearly prophesied this apostasy, Timothy should not have been surprised at the problems he was having. Now it would seem that the opponents were teaching a form of asceticism that forbade marriage and required abstinence from food, verse 3. And this may well come about from a hash of influence from both Judaism and Gnosticism of the day. But what's so instructive for us is how Paul helps Timothy to think it through. And he does it by going back to creation. It would seem that Trinity Church isn't the only church that sees the value of going back to Genesis chapter 1. So 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 4, Paul writes, For everything God created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So at creation, a number of things are established. In particular, God created everything, and that everything God created was good. And so to reject aspects of God's creation, whether it be marriage or certain foods, is to bring into question the goodness of God's creation and God's purpose in creating it, that it be received by us with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the right response in receiving a good gift from our Creator. Well, what then are we to make of verse 5? On the surface, it might look like a basis for blessing food, and anything else for that matter, to prepare it fit for use by the people of God. The problem with this is that God has already created the food good. 
It doesn't become good in response to anything done by us. Now, significant in our understanding of verse 5 is what we take Paul to have in view when he refers to the word of God. Well, the word of God could be the gospel, which includes the message that all food is now clean. Or it could refer to God's statement that creation is good and this creation includes food. The commentator Mounts catches it well when he says, The food is already clean by God's creative acts and the gospel's reaffirmation of that fact. A prayer of thanksgiving merely confirms in the individual God's prior action of making food good for all. In contrast to the asceticism of the opponents, in verses 6 to 10, Paul urges Timothy to train himself for godliness. It's one of the striking commands of the New Testament that God's people should be holy as he is holy. Now, many of us will be familiar with the work of holiness as being referred to as sanctification. Sanctification as opposed to justification. Justification is the idea that through faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. It represents a once-for-all change in our status. Sanctification, on the other hand, refers to our growth in holiness. We are encouraged to be like Christ. And it's a work on which we depend on the Spirit for. So that the Spirit does not only reveal Christ to us, he does not only enable us to accept him by regeneration, but he also conforms us to him. Timothy is to train himself for godliness. And in verse 8, Paul makes a contrast between bodily training and godliness. But what precisely is his argument here? Let's pick it up. Pick up the argument from verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We might understand the argument to be that although bodily training has some value, Godliness has more value. But that's not what the text says. It doesn't say that godliness is of more value, but that godliness has value for eternity. In other words, the issue in view here is not how much value exercise and godliness have, but how long they last. And one of the things that you find in the New Testament is the extent of the transformation that godliness brings. The New Testament envisages a complete transformation that encompasses the whole person, the mind, Romans 12, the heart and mind, Colossians 3, on the body, 1 Corinthians 6. That is to say that our sanctification is part of our salvation, is part of our recreation 
that prepares us for the place we will take with God in the new creation. Back in Genesis 1.28, we learn that God made humanity in his image. And the gospel brings about the transformation to restore that image in his people. And God aims to install the entire universe to righteousness. And the righteousness of his people is of a peace with that. It's why Paul's so committed to it, to the point of toiling and striving in his ministry. Paul is all about the proclamation of salvation that leads to godliness. Now, the godliness that Timothy is to train himself in, then, is not in some way that makes him qualitatively different from other Christians. You looked at this last week, back in chapter 3. Paul laid down the qualities of an elder and a deacon. And one of the qualities was godliness. And one of the things to observe uh, there was the unexceptional character of these qualities. The list is remarkable for being unremarkable. Paul lists all the kinds of behavioural things that are mandated of every Christian. Christian leaders must exemplify in their own lives what Christian leaders must be talking about all the time to everybody else. What God requires first and foremost is that they be consistent Christians. So what is required of an elder and deacon is godliness. What's required of all believers is this godliness. Well, it's in chapter 4, verse 14, that we read of Timothy's gifting. Let's pick it up at verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And this verse, verse 14, takes us back to chapter 1 and the ministry entrusted to Paul by Timothy. Specifically, chapter 1, verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. The prophecies that Paul mentions are no doubt those originally identifying Timothy as having the spiritual gifts necessary to do the task given him. The task to wage the good warfare by challenging and silencing false teachers, to guard the gospel and deliver it to others. The prophecy then simply indicated that Timothy possessed certain spiritual gifts spiritual gifts that enable him to continue his work in Ephesus. The laying on of hands then, rather than being thought to impart such gifts, were merely recognising that they'd been given, identifying Timothy for the ministry that was to follow. And as in the case of chapter 1, here in chapter 4, Paul's recalling this event to encourage Timothy in his present work at Ephesus. He has the gifts to perform the task. It also signaled to the Ephesian leaders that Timothy's gifts were acknowledged by the body of elders and the gospel partnership that entailed. Now, one of the features of this final section in verses 11 to 16 
is, is the sheer number of imperatives that Timothy is given by Paul. An imperative is basically a command. I counted 10 of them. 12, if you go back uh, to verse 6. So verse 11, command and teach these things. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth. Set the believers an example. Verse 13, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have. Verse 15, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Now, of course, the background to all of this is the opponents that Timothy must be careful not to fall prey to. But at this point, there's no sign that Timothy has stopped discharging his responsibilities. Rather, this, this string of imperatives comes as a much-needed encouragement to persevere in a difficult situation. And I take it that as those who have been entrusted with the gospel, that we continue in the same vein. And that we continue in the same vein as we entrust this gospel to the next generation, to the children. We began by considering the scarlet letter syndrome. It's the idea of being outwardly pious, but inwardly corrupt. And it's a position that can be reached that begins with a concern for godliness, but ends with a lowering of God's standards. And as we finish, it's illuminating to look back at our passage this morning with this idea in mind. The opponents were teaching to abstain from marriage and certain foods. They were outward displays of piety, concealing an inner corruption of insincerity and deceit. Abstaining from marriage and certain foods is achievable. And in one way, once I've done this, I might think I'm then free to go about my own business. But in reality, it's less than God wanted. Indeed, it denies the goodness of God's creation and denies God's right to receive thanksgiving for it. In contrast, Paul instructs Timothy to train himself in true godliness, a holistic transformation that encompasses the whole person and one that prepares us for the new creation. And this comes with a full assurance of salvation because the hope, our hope is set on the living God who is the saviour of all. Let's pray. I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope we have of a new creation where we will dwell with you and be your people and you will be our God. And we thank you that your salvation is comprehensive. It not only includes our justification, but also our sanctification, that we would grow in godliness in preparation for the lives that we live now in your name and that we will live all eternity when we're glorified in the new creation. 
We pray, please, that we would be warned along with Timothy to understand redemption as nothing less than your uh, fulfillment of your creation purposes, and so that godliness is nothing less than the whole transformation of our minds, our hearts, our wills, everything that we do that will be brought into conformity of our knowledge of you and your will for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I mentioned at the start um, an opportunity for any questions or comments. I don't know if the scarlet letter syndrome is just added confusion or you find that a helpful concept. So we can, um, you can ask me about that if you want or you can ditch it. Yes, preach. Thanks, Rach. Let me just repeat the question for the recording. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So I'm trying to recall what I read. First thing that comes to mind is that Timothy isn't actually that young, but I guess youngness is a, um, a relative term. So, and then we have a, a stab at this, and I'll, and I'll check. So I think um, if Timothy is relatively young, Timothy actually um, has been charged by Paul to, is entrusted with the gospel to actually sort out what's going on in Ephesus, including the silencing of these false teachers. And I take it that there is a risk that um, people will not um, take him seriously. Um, and interestingly here, he's in, again, there's an encouragement that actually he comes with a full uh, um, authority of Paul as an apostle. He's been entrusted, and I think this whole section in 11 to 16, is, and it was witnessed that the elders at Ephesus laid on their hands to recognise the gifting and the role that Timothy had um, at that time among uh, believers. So, um, but it also comes with um, that imperative of set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So I guess that is also this idea that in his youngness, he's not to... Um, He's to have integrity. He's to be a consistent Christian in terms of the life that he's living 
actually he's living out the gospel of which he is um, he is presenting. So I think it's I think it's that kind of thing. All right. Anybody else? Josh. Yeah. Yes. So, okay, that's half me to summarise for the yeah. recording. Uh, any further thoughts about sort of placing this training for godliness in the context of but we do keep sinning, but we we're not to that sort of thing. So, I think one thing we talked about before, which I I found very helpful, and it was um, through. Um, uh, one John, I can show you later the detail, but basically the the two ideas, I think there's a point that Carson made, the two ideas is that um, as God's people, we're not permitted to sin. And this fits with the whole idea. We're to be holy as God is holy. Um, so the standard is the holiness of God. And as we get to know God better, we see you know, what that looks like more and more. So in other words, our holiness starts with knowing God and his holiness. So on the one hand, we're not permitted to sin, so every sin we do is without excuse. But the second thing is, that 1 John teaches, is that when we do sin, we confess our sins, and he's faithful to forgive us because of Christ and his atoning death. So they're the sort of the two things, I think, that we, we want to kind of keep in, keep in mind. Um, and this, this would be in contrast, I mean, a classic, and I grew up on this, was as long as you try your best, that's the most important thing. But God doesn't say to us, try your best. He says, be holy as I'm holy. And when we fall short of that, he's made provision for that in the, um, in the blood of his, um, his son. Um, so I think that's helpful because then it, it keeps us striving for the godliness that we will one day have, the righteousness that we will one day have in the glorification when Christ returns. But that's the that's the direction that we're um, uh, that we're going in. Um, and I think the danger of well, it's interesting because I like to read a bit more about the holiness uh, movements. I don't know that much about them, but they do seem to start, particularly with young people who are just hungry for righteousness. You know, they, they're passionate about being wholehearted for God, and, and particularly in contrast maybe to a, a half-heartedness of um, older Christians or of, you know, of a more traditional sort of church sort of setting. But it's so damaging because if you, if you run for perfection, you're never going to get there. So either you give up or you lower the standards. And, you, and as I say, this is where the scarlet syndrome Scarlet Letter Syndrome comes in because the standards, the way to lower them, are inevitably majoring on the outward and minimizing the inward. But that's, that's less than what God requires. So, whereas I think the one John comments, we can have our cake and eat it, we can still be holy as God is holy, but then we're forever looking at the cross and the forgiveness that God has provided when we, when we fall short. Is that? that okay. Katie.
Yeah, no, uh, very good question. So for the recording, um, uh, reading verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as a whole promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So this whole idea of what is bodily training, if it's in contrast to godliness, does that risk separating the spiritual from the physical? Is, is body training just exercise, that sort of thing? It's quite easy just to repeat the question <laughs> um, and answer it. So, uh, a few thoughts. The, um, so initially, when I first came across it, before I hit the commentary, I kind of thought bodily training, oh, that's, that, that my thought initially went back to verse 3, and like forbidding marriage and abstinence from food. Now that's the kind of the bodily stuff. But that doesn't really make sense because here Paul's saying bodily training is of some value. And you just think he's blown forbidding marriage and abstaining from certain foods out of the water by virtue of the fact that God created everything good. And I think it, um, rather what's happening here is it's a contrast between Bodily training, which I think you're right to think is just it's just physical exercise. It's just it's just that's what it is. But the point of comparison is the fact that bodily, unlike bodily training, which is of some value, godliness has value for the present life now and in the life to come. So and you sometimes get this in the Bible where you just have to think about what axis is the writer measuring things and he's basically saying physical exercise is some value but godliness has value for this life and also for all eternity as it prepares us for the people uh, we will be as we dwell with God which you kind of think makes sense because our bodies are wasting away we'll one day die so Exercise is good, but it doesn't last, whereas godliness does last. And so I think it's, he's just on the point of comparison of um, how, how, long how long they last for. Um, so it's not saying bodily training is, is, should be avoided. It's just that godliness trumps it because it's, it, it, that's for eternity. It's almost like with that eternal perspective. Um, and I think this is where it is just helpful to think about godliness as it relates to our salvation, which is what I was trying to bring out, in that godliness is preparing us for taking our place in new heavens and new earth. And so that's, in that sense, we're to give ourselves to it because it's, it's nothing less than receiving the salvation it's no, sanctification is no less our salvation and justification or our regeneration or our predestination. They're all part of our part of God's order of salvation, which has eternal um, worth. And therefore, he's just, he's just um, it's, 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 it's the way Paul's urging Timothy to train himself for it precisely because it's of such worth. Is that... Answer your question? Yeah, so uh, the other thing you go back to, so in that sense, it's not saying, it's not, the, it's, he's not saying it's the spiritual rather than the physical. That's not the contrast he's making here. He's just saying 
one lasts longer than the other. But of course, you're spot on to think that actually godliness involves our bodies, not least um, our relationships with each other. And we looked at last week in chapter three um, that these are, you know, th these are all part, these are our relationships with each other that matter. Cool. It's all right. Good. Okay, we will leave it there. If you're happy, although do grab me at the end if you want to. We're going to sing a song now, Ode to See the Dawn, in preparation for um, reflecting on the Lord's death for us.